Hello and welcome to the Bristol to Beijing podcast. I'm Luke Grenfellshaw and I'm cycling from Bristol to Beijing on my tandem Chris. I left Bristol in January 2020 and it's fair to say it hasn't been straightforward so far. As I continue my expedition, I want to share the journey with you. And each episode, I'll be sharing my thoughts and experiences from the past week on the road. And occasionally, I'll also be chatting with someone who can shed some light on the country I'm in as I try and understand the world a little better. So, without further ado, what's happened this past week? Luke, we left you in Baku, and as far as I'm aware, you're still in Baku. What have you been up to? You're spot on. I am still in Baku right now. I am waiting for permission to enter Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And when I get that, then I can apply for a visa. And these are pretty exceptional times. If I get the permission, which I fingers crossed will, Mm -hmm. that will be exceptional. And these things just take time to sort of work their way through the government apparatus. So right now I'm still based in Baku. Mm-hmm. I have had a bit of a weekend jaunt, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. And it's given me a bit of a chance to get to know Baku a little bit better. So last week you gave us some of your first impressions on Baku. What do you think of Baku now that you've been able to spend a bit more time there? Well, I think one of my overall sort of take homes from looking at Baku and actually Azerbaijan as a whole is that to me they seem to have done a pretty good job with their oil wealth and I say that because a lot of countries say Nigeria parts of the Middle East arguably have been affected or afflicted by what's often known as the oil curse and it ends up leading to a lot of corruption the money gets sort of siphoned off by the political elites you see very little impact of that wealth around the country And actually in Baku itself, to me, it seems like a pretty vibrant and flourishing city. And it has a lot of interest in its skyline. I do Mm. love the modern architecture. Before I left Bristol on this cycle ride, I didn't particularly like modern architecture. And I mean, you know, your glass and concrete Dubai-like structures. But actually here in Baku, you've got the flame towers, which catch the light in a lot of different ways, depending on which angle you see them from they really add something very interesting to the skyline. And then you've got these other tall buildings, which are glass and concrete, and there's a whole crescent bay. And there's these almost spaceship-like buildings that are quite curved. And in the evening, they catch the sun and they reflect the sun's light onto the water. And that just makes the place beautiful. So to me, there's a lot of interest in this city. And then it's coupled with these much older parts, like the old city, which has hammams, the old bathhouses. It's got the Shah's palace, Mm. winding little streets. It's quite nice because it's small enough that you're never going to get properly lost. Mm. You're always going to come out and hit a wall at some point, ringing the old city. But you can just wander down these little passageways and you can come across like a mosque that, which has been turned into a museum for Qurans or you come across an art studio or you come across a coffee shop. And that is one of the big changes that's happened in Baku over the last five years, I'm told, is that five years ago, there are basically no coffee shops like the rest of Azerbaijan that just drank tea. When the first shops came up, apparently they just didn't know how to make a cup of coffee. This is according to one guy called Mark, and he was very dismissive, Azerbaijani guy. And he was just like, no, they didn't know how to make coffee. But now it rivals anything that you can get in Europe. So 
there's a lot of things that are quite exciting happening, not just there, but also in the bar scene. There's one really great place called Barduck. And it's kind of this tavern, kind of wine cellary feel to it. And it's just a cocktail bar. Mm. And so the fact that these places are coming up, that they're quite fun and cool. And so it's been quite exciting. It sounds like you've really started to discover Baku far more than you had a week ago. We were sent in a question by someone called Frank Cardi on Instagram who asked, which city do you prefer, Batumi or Baku? This could be another B2B, couldn't it? And these are both coastal cities. Mm -hmm. So Batumi is on the Black Sea. Baku is, of course, on the Caspian Sea. Uh, Batumi is much, much smaller. Okay. And for me, I really like that. For me, I'm a bit more of a small city, large town kind of person where Mm. you can very quickly get into the mountains. But they're quite similar in some ways because Batumi has a very eclectic mix of architecture, more eclectic than Baku, because you've got your Soviet apartment blocks, you've got your glass skyscrapery types of buildings. And there was one building that had basically a golden version of the London Eye impregnated into the side of it, wow. which is just totally random. So I, I love that about Batumi. And it's also, I'd say, very much an up and coming city. Mm. Probably five years behind Baku in terms of they're just beginning to be artsy coffee shops and more kind of quote unquote you know, trendy places. Mm. Whereas you know, Baku has that legacy of being a, quite a prominent city from a hundred years ago with these big stately homes. And it was interesting, it's back a hundred years ago, Baku was where the money was from the oil. And actually Batumi was a pretty dodgy dive of a place where oil was actually taken from Baku across one of the first ever pipelines and then sent across the Black Sea. But at that point, Batumi was a pretty dodgy place Mm. to be. There's a really good book called The Oil and the Glory. Reading it right now, fascinating history of oil in the Caspian region, our struggles that go on. It's it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So which do I prefer? Was that the question? Yes. Which do you prefer? I think... I mean, I actually really love them both. I love both of these countries. Probably they're two of my favorite cities so far, along with Bratislava Mm -hmm. and and Belgrade. It's all about the bees. It's all the bees. Bee to bee to bee to bee to bee to bee. I have no idea how many bees we've got. Or to be. Or not to be. Or not to be. That is the question. So the question is, Batumi or Baku? (laughs) I probably would say I love the small town feel. If I had to live somewhere, it would probably be Batumi because just being able to get out into the mountains, they're right on your doorstep in Batumi plus the beach. Whereas here in Baku, you've got to travel significantly further to get the mountains. So Batumi wins just by a narrow margin. but Very narrow. I understand that this weekend you did actually leave Baku. You did get out of Baku and away for a little mini adventure. Tell us more about that. I think this is... Really fascinating. I was reflecting upon this, that it's very easy to get sort of stuck and comfortable somewhere. And I very nearly didn't leave Baku this weekend because it's like, oh, there's still a lot more for me to see. I've got a whole list of things I need to do. Mm-hmm. There's always a hundred reasons. And this sounds a bit like the premise of the Bristol to Beijing cycle, right? But there's always a hundred reasons to stay in your comfort zone and to just stay planted in what you know, getting to know the streets that's going to feel more familiar. But I decided, actually, you know, there's so much I want to explore. I'm going to hire a car Mm -hmm. and I'm going to go to the north and I'm going to see what's there. And I was very lucky to be lent a bike by the Azerbaijan Cycling Federation. So I've got a road bike to cavort around on. Slightly lighter and quicker than Chris. (sighs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love you, Chris, but you know, this is your time to have a little bit of a well-earned break. So what was it like being back on a road bike after however many months you spent on a tandem? I mean, it, it's great. It's a, it's a very different feel and particularly going up hills, it's fantastic. And that was very useful because I basically did two climbs, one on Saturday and the other on Sunday. And you know, the one on Saturday was going up through this valley, which I think is called somewhat informally like a candy cane valley because it's beautiful striated rocks mm-hmm. of red and white and kind of yellowy in layers. And that all went pretty well. And I sort of enjoyed that immensely. So you had a nice day on Saturday and then Sunday? How did that go? So Sunday, I was cycling from this town called Guba, which is pretty far in the north of Azerbaijan, to a tiny village called Hinalik. And it's a pretty special village. It's populated by a group who are ethnically distinct from the Azeris. Mm-hmm. And they're called the Ketid, and they have their own language. It's a 50 kilometer road away from Guba, right up at 2,300 meters. I think it's the highest populated village in Europe, wow. if you count Azerbaijan in Europe. So it's really, it's pretty damn remote. Yeah. And I thought it would be a nice idea to cycle there. Okay. So I got this road bike and I'd just done a nice ride up into the mountains the day before. So I start and it turns out this isn't just a sort of nice stretch of road. This is something that goes like constantly up and down. And when it goes up, the gradients are extreme. We're talking like 15, 20, 25%. And so when you're climbing, Mm. it's not a steady, gentle climb. You're like out the saddle going full gas. And then these come time and time again. Mm. And it got worse because then the road started to get more and more grit and gravel on it. So it felt quite sketchy. Mm. And then also when I was trying to get out the saddle, my back wheel would start Mm. slipping just on the gravel. So I was forced to stay in the saddle going up these really steep climbs. Mm. And I actually got to about 25k in out of about 50. And I was just like, I don't know if I, if I want to be doing this. I don't know if I really care enough to actually get to the top on my road bike. I, I might well just pack it in, go back down, get the car and drive all the way up and go for a run at the top. I was really seriously considering doing that because it was just not fun at all. So what happened? Did you carry on? Well, I stopped. I stopped at 25k. I had a banana and an apple and I procrastinated a bit, basically just trying to work out if I wanted to carry on. And this Lada car stopped and these three boys jump out. They start trying to talk to me. We don't really share any language. They just spoke Azari, but they got out a bottle of apple Fanta and they poured it out in some cups and they gave me some. And I was like, yeah, I'm going up to this village in I guess I, I guess I am. Mm-hmm. And just after their warmth, I carried on cycling. Okay. But then it got even steeper and even worse. Oh, and I was cycling up this incredibly steep, gritty slope. It wasn't tarmac anymore at this point. And again, I stopped and I was like, do I just go back? And I was like, I just can't do that. I'm just not sure if I go back and I look myself in the mirror if I would be happy with that decision Mm -hmm. I think I would have a good time running at the top but I'd set out to cycle up and I felt that was the thing that really stopped me from going back because it was my aim when I set out so I walked up I walked up this slope well you made it up to the top with a bike eventually so for me it was a very humbling experience I suppose 
the way I ride, I pride myself on cycling everywhere when I'm on a bike and I didn't. Mm. But I did get to Hinelig. So actually, sometimes people ask me about the motivation. And that was actually one time I was really, really pushed. And I think one reason was that the alternative seemed very alluring, very attractive, that it was as good. Mm. And maybe it was. But I think actually the, the most important thing was I'd set out to cycle and I think I'd just been unprepared of how difficult it would have been. But had I known at the beginning, I think I would have been in a much better state of mind to deal with those challenges as they came. Since you restarted the Bristol to Beijing ride back in September 2020, is that the closest you've come to wanting to give up? I mean, I know it was not on Chris, it was on a road bike, but was that the closest you felt to that sort of throwing the towel in attitude? Yeah, I'm sure it was. And I think part of the reason is that this felt like a little optional add-on. It's not part of the direct line towards Beijing. And what does it matter anyway? Whereas I think Beijing, that whole cycle ride, I'm kind of prepared for there to be some really big challenges along the way. And it's something I'm really passionate and excited to see through. This was just a kind of casual ride. I guess I'd invested less in it and I was more willing to walk away but it's very interesting to see that sometimes the most challenging situations can be things that you think are going to be very trivial or small Mm. and actually I think that can often be true in life I don't know about you Kate if you've ever sort of found that the more challenging things have been the things that you didn't expect to find challenging Hmm. that is probably the case because things that you build up to be a big challenge you're you're prepared mentally for that approach whereas if you don't have that mental preparation then it's more likely to be a bit more of a shock I guess. Mm. You've actually been asked another question about challenges by TLJ95, who wanted to know what do you think will be the biggest challenge ahead? I think the biggest challenge ahead can be one or two things. The first being physical, and that will be going through Central Asia and the Pamir Highway, I expect. Mm -hmm. It goes over 4,000, 5,000 meters on a gravel track. And I think that's going to be physically absolutely grueling. Mm-hmm. The tandem does not climb well. It is very heavy. And I'm also worried about mechanical problems. I've already had the rim break once. If the rim breaks in the middle of the Pamir Highway in Tajikistan, that ah, pretty screwed. Mm. So that's one thing. The second challenge, I think, going forward is simply moving from one country to another. Because all it will take is for one government to say... We're not helping you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're no different from anyone else. And I'm not. You can't cross into our country. Mm -hmm. Then uh, could well hit a huge block. And potentially right now with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, you know, if they say no, I tried to go through Iran. Turkmenistan is just completely off the cards. That would be Russia. But if there's a problem there, then all of a sudden things have been going quite well. And you hit an absolute roadblock. And that could happen still at any point and it's something I'm quite aware of and particularly so now as I'm Mm. waiting for visas and just hoping that they come through. Well Thomas J Fisher sent in a question asking us what your route planning is looking like at the moment. So I guess you've sort of answered that there but how is it going and how much of a worry is that for you? I do definitely try and take it step by step. And I'm absolutely not thinking about China at all. I'm not thinking about Pakistan. They're hopefully all going to be on the route. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm just thinking about Kazakhstan crossing the Caspian Sea to Aktau and cycling from there into Uzbekistan through some of the really great towns of the old Silk Mm -hmm. Roads, Bukhara, Samarkand. 
and then to the capital, Tashkent, and then I'll be hopefully heading into Almaty, former capital. It's still the commercial capital of Kazakhstan, and then going south through Central Asia, through Kyrgyzstan. But really, right now, all I'm thinking about and focusing on is Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and hoping that comes off. Do you naturally tend to just think, okay, that's the plan, I'm going for that, or do you always have a backup plan in the back of your head? I do tend to focus on the plan. So right now I'm focused on Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. But if they don't come through, then I'll immediately be thinking, okay, what about Russia? You know, straight away pivot. You don't waste time faffing. Yeah, always aware that there might be a need to pivot, being open to that, you know, whether that's going through Russia, whether it's actually saying, okay, I need to get on a plane to Bishkek Mm. because that's just the next country I can go to. I'm going to be pragmatic in these situations as well. So we'll, we'll see which way this rolls, but... Fingers crossed, we'll, we'll get across the Caspian Sea. So route planning is a, a flexible thing at the moment. Indeed it is, yeah. I'm not very flexible in my body, but uh, when it comes to route planning, I've got more flexibility. I think that's something that's pretty important for everyone, to be honest, to have flexibility in their lives, especially over the last year. I think that's what most people have learned from it. I think definitely. You know, there's so much in this last year that's been incredibly unideal. Mm-hmm as I call yes. it. And yet there are still opportunities and it might not be the opportunity to join that sort of tango class that you're wanting to join or you know a cookery class in, in a group. But like, you know, can you do those things on YouTube? Sure, it might not be as good, but it's probably better than not doing it at all. So I think that's always sort of part of it. But I know it's very easy to say, and uh, particularly from someone who is cycling across the world, I don't have any sort of standpoint, I think, to be saying it from in in a way. I'm very, very lucky and I'm not having to deal with a a lot of what most people are in the UK. Well, instead you're dealing with Baku and waiting for administrative processes to happen. Which is a very fortunate position to be in. Hopefully you'll have next week in Baku and you'll be on the road before long. But I think we've got some new music. That is right. So I visited this amazing restaurant, which is a museum come restaurant, giving you a feel for like what Azerbaijan used to be mm-hmm. like. And there's some brilliant signs there that are both in Russian yeah. and in Persian. Okay. And this is going back 100 or over 100 years when Russia controlled Azerbaijan or parts of it. And yet until that very recently at that point, it had been part of the Persian Empire, and indeed, parts of it still were. And so, for me, this was just a beautiful framing of oh, here's some Russian, here's some Persian. So, you've got the two Cyrillic and then the kind of Arabic script. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at that restaurant, there was this guy who was playing one of the traditional Azri instruments. It's a bit like a guitar, but with a longer stem and quite a nice bulb shaped sound box. And we're going to listen to some of his music for the outro. So, I hope you enjoy it. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Till next week. And that was this week's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. We put a lot of time into the podcast. So please do support us by subscribing, reviewing and rating. And please send in your questions that you have about any aspect of life on the road to Bristol to Beijing on social media. Until next week, goodbye.